Hello friends and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association where we aim to change the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern or catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I have my entire TCA team here today, including Ashley McGuire, Maureen Ferguson, and Lee Sneed, as we do a, a complete dissection and breakdown of a serious situation in Ohio where the pro-abortion lobby is attempting to enshrine a f- full access to abortion through all nine months of pregnancy and for any reason into the Constitution, the state Constitution of Ohio. Listeners can go to the TCA YouTube channel and watch our chat, and you can just look for the Catholic Association on YouTube. Search the Catholic Association. Welcome to the show, ladies. Hi, Gracie. Hi, Gracie. Gracie. So this is a new one for us. We are all on the radio show, which is, of course, is also a podcast all the time. And it's also now a YouTube channel. We have our own channel, ladies. And this is our first, this is our debut, our big debut. So I think it's going to go wonderfully. And we've chosen a really great topic. We are going to be talking about the Ohio Ballot Initiative, which uh, maybe you've read about it in the news. Maybe you haven't. It's a little complicated, and Ashley, our own Ashley, has been following very closely and writing it up. Um, It's an abortion ballot initiative uh, here in Conversations with Consequences at the Catholic Association. We pay a lot of attention uh, to to all these uh, efforts to protect life, starting at conception, so the struggle against, uh, against abortion, uh, which has actually gotten so much more complicated since Dobbs. We were all waiting for the end of Roe v. Wade, because it was going to be this amazingly liberating moment. Well, it sort of landed, a, landed us in a more in a more swampy place uh, where every single state's a battleground. And Ohio happens to be a really important battleground for um, this post-Dobbs era. So Ashley, putting you on the hot seat, tell us what's going on in Ohio. Give us some quick strokes about that. Sure. Well, you know, it really is the the state to watch right now because um, the tactic that the abortion lobby is using in Ohio right now is the tactic that they're using, um, that they've used in a few other states around the country and that um, they're obviously using as a, a model for the way forward. Um, and it's, it's really, um, it's duplicitous um, because it basically uh, deceives voters Um, with a ballot initiative that just requires a simple majority to pass to amend the Constitution um, to say that no law can be passed that in any way um, hinders uh, reproductive access. Uh, They use language that um, I think sounds appealing to most voters, but in fact what it means is that um, there cannot be any laws if this initiative passes um, that in any way protect babies protect women. We're talking health and safety standards in abortion clinics. We're talking outlawing barbaric, painful late-term abortions. It basically strips away 
choice for voters, which is exactly what the Dobbs ruling was about, which was about returning um, the issue of abortion back to the people, giving voters a say for the first time in more than half of a century on this issue of deep moral consequence. Um, and they're trying to come in through the side door and take it away, ironically, in the name of voter choice. Um, and I think what, you know, we were talking about this today because um, the timing of this is at the same time that a new study came out and found that 70% of women felt pressured into their abortions. Mm -hmm. um, and so what this would do is basically make abortion the sort of de facto status quo um, in a state like Ohio, remove any say for voters uh, moving forward ever on the issue of abortion um, and just make women feel that much more pressured into abortions that they don't want to have. Ashley, what is it that um, women would prefer? Is the parenting that they feel that they're not supported enough or pressured not to do? Um, do you think it's, you know, because of their partners, their lack of a partner, the silent stigma of silent, I mean, we have single parenting. What What is it, These uh, the two out of three women who felt coerced in this uh, peer-reviewed study felt like? I think it's all of the things that you mentioned. I mean, I think economic issues are probably one of the leading uh, reasons, as well as feeling um, a lack of support, you know, not having a supportive partner. And these are things that we can we can help women with. We know that we have the tools in this country to help women with these things. Um, you look at states that have really put in place strong protections for unborn babies and for women, uh, places like Texas, and they've done that in conjunction with tens of millions of dollars of support for places like pregnancy resource centers, um, you know, houses where, you know, many of these places will, which will actually help women through the first months, even years of being a mom, women who, who want to have the baby, but feel like because of financial reasons or lack of support that they can't. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's all of the things that you mentioned, but what's so tragic about these ballot initiatives is they just, they move, they move the energy away from supporting women and into pressuring women and really sort of gives the pimps, the boyfriends uh, who just want to walk away the upper hand um, because that becomes the status quo instead of, um, you know, taking the approach of, wow, you know, two and three women who have abortions don't want to. How can we use our resources in this country to help them make the choice that they want to choose, which also happens to be the choice that affirms um, the dignity of unborn life. Ashley, when you were saying that this uh, this initiative, if, if it if it makes it if it makes it, will will strip any any chance of making any regulations around abortion. One thing that popped to mind was um, parental notification, uh, which to me uh, it's just such a no brainer, right? Uh, even if you are very much if you're very comfortable, if you're very pro choice, you're very comfortable with abortion, you would still feel very you would still feel very strongly that parents ought to know if maybe they have a minor daughter who's being trafficked or abused um a boyfriend that's maybe doing this for the third time this year right like taking her to Planned parenthood for the third time and she's falling into she's fallen into hands that where where she should where she doesn't belong so are even like common sense things like parental notification or the kind of regulations that would have prevented the horrible gosnell um abortion just the horror show that was, you know, his clinic in Philadelphia that where he was committing murders, but nobody, nobody would go check, right? Nobody was, um, nobody was following up on complaints. So does, does Ohio, is Ohio, could, could Ohio be opening itself up to these kinds of things? 
Yeah, it would it would potentially make Ohio among the most extreme states in the country on abortion. Um, you know, we've seen after the fall of Roe v. Wade that there's a range of, you know, voter preferences on this issue. But, you know, as you say, you know, even even voters who support, um, you know, something like first trimester abortion, they still also support um, things like outlying uh, by ex very strong margins, outlying barbaric late term abortions, basic common sense health and safety regulations and standards for abortion clinics, holding them to the same, you know, health and safety standards as a place where you're going to go get your toe, a toe surgery, um, things like that. And as you point out, parental notification and parents' rights. I mean, I think that's really become a, a, a touchstone issue in the matter mm -hmm. is the fact that this would completely, this could potentially criminalize parents who are trying to protect their daughters who are being trafficked. Um, because they would become the ones who are the undue burden um, to the reproductive choices of their daughter. Um, so it's a lot of, it's all <clears throat> couched in a lot of language that sounds moderate, but in fact, it's a very, um, its results would be very extreme. And I think not what the voters of Ohio want, um, and definitely totally out of step with where the voters in this country are on the issue, which is uh, they support protecting women, protecting babies, um, and 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 ultimately want to have a say again in their state's mm -hmm. uh, laws and the way that they handle this issue. And it's so important to get back to that that what this would do is strip that away. Um, it's basically like signing away your rights moving forward to vote on the issue because you're saying um, that anything that in any way is deemed any sort of a burden. Um, on reproductive access is outlawed moving forward. And it's, you know, written into the state constitution, which is very hard to go back and alter. Ashley, can you explain why the new battleground seems to be these ballot initiatives? Why is the abortion lobby pushing them? Why are they having such success? And, you know, you mentioned Ohio, it's such a pro-life state. So it, it's really curious that um, that this is such an uphill climb. And you mentioned language, which I think is probably part of the key to why the other side is winning. Um, you know, the abortion lobby is also so well funded. So I'm sure we get outspent on most of these ballot initiatives. But can you tell us um, a little bit about the battle over the language? Because we all know that language shapes the way we think about things. And when things are worded in a different way, uh, you get a very different outcome in terms of uh, the the vote on the ballot initiative. So can you explain that? What, what's going on? Because I know there's a lot of back and forth on the language of the Ohio ballot initiative. Right. Yeah. I saw that um, the, the language of the actual initiative now is going to include the word unborn child. And so the abortion lobby is suing over that. They wanted to say fetus. But what to <laughs> me that suggests is the, theirs is a game of deception um, and distraction. And so, you know, in the same way they talk about undue burden, reproductive rights, fetus, it's all about sort of glossing over the the reality of what the bill is about. They don't want people to even be thinking about the fact that this involves unborn children. Um, and so that's really been, you know, when you look at any of these polls, when they poll about um, the various um you know, different state level uh, 
pieces of legislation that have come down, the way you ask, you know, the, the way you question people matters a lot. Like if you ask voters, do you support um, protecting unborn life after a heartbeat is detected? You'd be shocked at the number of Americans that say yes. Um, but if you if you poll them and say, do you support um, overturning Roe v. Wade, that gets a little more dicey because people don't understand, I think, um, what Roe v. what overturning Roe v. Wade actually meant, which was no, it didn't mean abortion is every form of abortion is illegal in every state in this country moving forward. It just means um, that now the issue is returned back to the state. So it is really a, a battle of of semantics. And I think that, you know, the other side, the abortion lobby is, you know, they understand that they've they've lost at the Supreme Court. And so they have to go to the different states and find ways of putting, you know, I think they sense that uh, people don't, um, they're uncomfortable with the idea of, you know, there being no access to abortion whatsoever, which, you know, we're, we're in totally new territory for the first time in half of a century in this country. It's understandable that people are very um, susceptible to talks about extremes. Um, and they're really, uh, what's the word? They're playing on that. And but ultimately, it's it's about um, using deceptive language. And I think what's so sinister about this these ballot initiatives is that they're basically getting people to vote away their own rights. Um, you know, by making them think that they have feel like I have a I have a choice in this matter. They're actually getting people to assign away their rights to ever have a choice or a say in those issues again, um, or at least, you know, making it extremely difficult to ever get that back. I was just going to follow up on the question about language, because for 50 years, the abortion lobby has been so successful in uh, framing the issue in terms of choice and rights. And um, so I was so encouraged to see that um, the ballot board, I guess it was, in Ohio was tweaking the language to more accurately reflect the reality of abortion. And um, so changing fetus to unborn child. And I guess there was language about viability uh, because the abortion lobby wants to word the ballot initiative to say, abortion will be allowed until viability, and then only with certain exceptions for health situations. But of course, that's very deceptive because any language about health in abortion law is like a loophole you could drive a truck through. It could be emotional health, familial health. You know, I have three kids. Or, economic health. Um, economic health. I can't afford Social health. child. Or, um, right. So, so the Ohio ballot board, I think, is trying to change the language to make it more accurately reflect the fact that under this uh, initiative, abortion would be allowed past viability for virtually any reason, and the determination is made by the abortion doctor, uh, him or herself. So, you know, hardly an objective um, party in the situation. So, um, so I'm and, glad and, to see the 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 pro-life side is um, kind of on to the deceptive language in in the underlying initiative. And let's not forget that um, the AP, um, you know, maybe three four months ago, changed its style book to refer to pre pregnancy resource centers as anti-abortion. Oh, um, yeah. Just another example of the way that you know, if you have the upper hand on language, you really get to frame the debate, and you know that that's such a 
inaccurate way of labeling these centers, which are, you know, truly pro-women. That's like saying uh, Chick-fil-A is anti-beef. Just because they don't sell, <laughs> they don't sell hamburgers. Right. Yeah. I mean, what but we, actually, what do we sell? Actually, what do we give away at pregnancy resource centers? We give away all these supports and encouragements and love and assistance to help women do what they want to do. They're only there because they want to keep the child. Yeah, that actually is perfect segue into my question that I had for Ashley. Is there any um, language in the ballot initiative or? simultaneously are they going after these pregnancy crisis centers in ohio the way they we've seen it done in other states um in terms of their status in terms of their protection i mean we know like marine said ohio has been a pro-life state they've got safe haven laws on the books um is there anything that's happening with the uh pregnancy crisis centers there not that i know of at least with this initiative explicitly but it's kind of an interesting point like could they get caught in the crosshairs of being you know uh, an undue birth, like let's say you counsel a woman like into, you know, not you, you give a woman some counseling that ultimately supports the decision to keep a child, you know, like, I don't right. know. But I mean, I think that the bottom line is again, to go back to that stunning study that found that 70% of women who have had abortions, and this was a very comprehensive study. This wasn't some small thing. This was, you know, a very large study. Uh, with very stark and decisive results that found that basically women in this country don't want to have abortions and they feel pressured into it. And that should be setting off alarm bells for all of us, um, including people who, you know, self-identify as pro-choice because, you know, this is not a pro-choice country if, if most women felt pressured into their abortions. Like, again, how does that differentiate us from these extremist regimes, which are you know, quite literally forcing women to into abortions. Um, it's just a it's just a different type of of forced abortion. It's a different type of of pressure, but it's real, and the outcome is the same: a dead baby, and and an unhappy woman who wanted to keep her baby. And you know, so this these ballot initiatives do absolutely nothing to help those women. And I would argue, and I did argue in my in my op ed that it actually exacerbates a climate of uh, abortion pressure for women. We're going to put a link to your op-ed um, at, at, in the show notes, and I encourage all our listeners and viewers to look at that. It's an excellent piece. And another thing, Ashley, I was thinking, um, so this initiative in Ohio, if passed, would create would add a new section to the state constitution, as you mentioned, that would create a right to reproductive freedom. And I was thinking, I'm, I'm very aware as a, as a physician about all the ways that um, medic, medical science is in, is, is, it, it's hard for me to talk about medicine and abortion at the same time because they, they're antithetical in many ways. Um, but ways that science is continuously changing and offering, offering us new uh, possibilities. So for instance, they're talk, they did a uterine transplant um, on a woman uh, in England a couple weeks ago that was successful. I don't think successful to the point that she's having a child anytime soon, but at least it, she's keeping the organ for now. And um, so things, it's a Pandora's box in a sense, like there's all these possibilities coming up, but Ohio voters will have tied their own hands. So imagine somebody coming forward and saying, my, my right to reproductive freedom as a man includes having, you know, a uterus transplant at, on taxpayer expense, right? I can imagine a scenario where they would say, oh, yeah, that's reproductive freedom, free freedom to reproduce. Maybe that sounds like an outlier, but 
or something that could never happen. But let's face it, we're surrounded right now in our culture by things that were never supposed to happen, that were too crazy to happen, and they're happening all around us, everywhere we look. What do you think about that, about voters tying their hands before the before huge changes in science? Well, and, you know, the, another issue with this ballot initiative is it gets to parents' rights on some of these other, you know, what if your teenage child, your 12, 13-year-old daughter, decides that she's, you know, been swept up in this gender ideology mm -hmm. stuff and wants surgery, uh, there's, you know, this could potentially strip away parents' rights on that front. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's a kind of, right? In, in a sense, it's a, it's a kind of reproductive part. freedom, right? To say, Definitely. well, I want to reproduce as a male instead of a female. No, and I think you should put nothing past the motives of the people behind this initiative. Mm -hmm. They are anti-parents' rights. They are anti-life um, and they are pulling out all the stops to do anything um, that advances that agenda. So, you know, if you're a voter who values those things, um, this is a serious um, issue to watch. Um, so, Ashley, I guess the Ohio ballot initiative has been a little bit complicated because there was an August vote and now there's going to be another vote in November. And I saw that President Biden weighed in after the August vote talking about uh, the freedom of women to make their own health care decisions. And he was using all encompassing language that, um, like you raised, the concern that this can, you know, health care decisions when you're talking about minors, um, there is such a craze in this transgender movement. So um, I think it's a very real thing that kids could get swept up into that and that parents would have no rights to weigh in. And, um, you know, President Biden, it, it's a little unusual to have the president of the United States weighing in on this seemingly little ballot initiative in Ohio in the middle of August when no one's even paying attention. So I do think this is a real priority for the abortion lobby. And, um, you know, I'm wondering what can what can our listeners in Ohio do to help educate their fe fe fellow citizens and um, any good action items that people can take? Well, um, you know, I, President Biden is, is you know, as he's bought and sold by the abortion lobby. He's a he's a total extremist. I mean, if, if anything, he really represents um, where the Democrat Party is on this issue, which is to the complete far left extreme. Can um, I can I make a parenthetical? This is a Catholic show. He's a Catholic. <laughs> That's just a well, parenthetical. Right. Um, and he carries so, his uh, rosary beads, but I just I, sometimes it's like like wake, that wakes me up in the middle of the night. Sometimes we have a Catholic president, and he's one hundred percent abortion boosting. Well, it's it's a, a cause of um, of extreme scandal, that's for sure. Um, but no, I mean, I the grassroots. This is really a grassroots moment. I mean, I've we've had similar bills put on um, the ballot here in Maryland, where I live, and. My church has put out things in the back that explain, they break down the language with bold and underline, explaining to people what this actually means. And I think it's important to not just explain what the language, their deceptive language means, but what the outcomes are and to keep people focused on that. Like, this is what it means practically for parents' rights. Um, this is what it means for um, late-term abortion, because that's that helps voters. So they've put out things like voter guides in the back of church um, and so, you know, I think there's, as Catholics, we're, we're called to, um, 
to work to defend the common good. And the, these ballot initiatives are completely antithetical to the common good. And there is, you know, we're, we're actually called to, um, you know, work to prevent, um, you know, laws that would dramatically harm the common good and, and, and innocent life. So I guess a call to action to all our listeners would be if you're in Ohio, uh, pay attention, write to your um, congressman, to your to your senator and 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 tell him how you feel that you don't want uh, no holds barred abortion enshrined in the Constitution of your state forever and ever and ever so that there can never be any regulations, the most minor regulations to keep women safe and, 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 and girls um, and if you're in another state, see what's going on in your state, right? I mean, this might be happening in your backyard or it's about to happen. Yeah. 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 Pay attention to the headlines in your own state. And also on the federal level, there is a great bill to support women in need who are, mm-hmm. um, pregnant and in a crisis. And it's called the Providing for Life Act. It's being sponsored in the House by Congresswoman Ashley Hinson, who's a young mom from uh, Iowa. I think she's in her third term in Congress. We have to have her on the show, Maureen. You you must connect us. We should. And um, Senator Marco Rubio is the main sponsor in the Senate. So anyone, any of our listeners who live anywhere can write to their member of Congress and to U.S. senators urging support for this pro-life safety net bill called the Providing for Life Act, sponsored by Congresswoman Ashley Hinson. Sounds absolutely lovely. What could be better than Providing for Life? And thank you, Ashley, for all this wonderful information. We we brought you out of your maternity retirement. (laughs) You've been away. having taken good care of your your new baby so we're we're really happy to see you and to hear your voice so thank you all of you ladies for for today for joining me on conversations with consequences thanks gracie thank you gracie bye listeners can go to the tca youtube channel and watch our chat and you can just look for the catholic association on youtube search the catholic association Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. Bishop Paprocki of the Diocese of Springfield, Illinois. We're going to be talking to him about the National Eucharistic Congress. Welcome to the show, Your Excellency. Thank you. Good to be with you. Well, I I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us, and I hope that we have uh, the occasion to to talk about and touch upon several different things that I wanted your expertise on (laughs) for our listeners. Recently, you wrote a piece uh, in First Things called Imagining a Heretical Cardinal, which was a fabulous piece. It was about Eucharistic coherence. And 
And right now, the, the Eucharist is, is a very important topic for all of us Catholics. And we are in the midst of a Eucharistic revival, uh, which to me is a, a, wonderful, a wonderful idea that I think will have tremendous spiritual benefits for all of us and, and will bring us many graces. But I wanted to know if you could give us a scholarly version of Eucharistic coherence. What, what does that mean and how can we understand it better? Well, Eucharistic coherence is a phrase uh, that was used by the uh, bishops of Latin America when they wrote a document referred to as the Aparacita document, Aparacita is, is the name of that. And uh, it was when um, now Pope Francis was then the Archbishop of uh, Buenos Aires, then Cardinal Jorge Bergoglio, uh, and he was uh, an important architect of that Aparacita document. And there's a very uh, strong section in that document where they talk about Eucharistic coherence and what they mean by that is uh, that there should be a coherence or consistency between what we do uh, on Sunday when we go to Mass and um, receive Holy Communion and then what we do the rest of the week uh, in living out our, our Christian lives. And it is incoherent and inconsistent if we say that we're good Catholics and then we hold to teachings that are contrary to the Catholic Church or if we act in a way that is contrary to the moral law of, of the Church and then try to go to Holy Communion without being repentant for those sins, that's that's incoherent. And so that's that's been an, a, an essential part of our faith, going back to St. Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians, where he talked about those who eat the body, the body of Christ, the Holy Communion, as we call it, or drink the cup, the precious blood, that uh, they, in fact, uh, bring judgment upon themselves if they do so uh, unworthily. And uh, we call that uh, uh, the sin of sacrilege, because they're receiving Holy Communion while you're uh, not in the state of grace. And that's actually compounding the sin. And that, uh, it's, a, it's a sin in itself, the sin of sacrilege, to receive Holy Communion when you're not in the state of grace. For those who um, are conscious of, of grace sin, the teaching of the Church is that we... Uh, first have to go to uh, the sacrament of penance and uh, be reconciled uh, by confessing our sins, being sorry for our sins, and make a firm purpose of amendment not to commit those sins uh, again, and then receive absolution from the from the priest. So there's a, an important connection between uh, uh, the sacrament of reconciliation and uh, uh, receiving Holy Communion. Well, Your Excellency, it, I know that you must know that people uh, here in the United States in general, Catholics, uh, Sunday-going Catholics that go every single Sunday, even daily Mass-going Catholics, they tend now to think about communion, about the Eucharist as a kind of medicine for their sins, um, something that will get them, will give them graces that, that they need to, to overcome their sins, but they don't, I feel like people have lost that sense of that reverence with which you approach the Eucharist and 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 the necessity to of, of being in a state of grace already before you, you you present yourself. Can one receive the graces of the Eucharist if one is not an already in a state of grace? Well, no. If, if someone is um, is not in the state of grace and is uh, you know in fact in the state of mortal sin, uh, then they they don't receive the graces of the sacrament. In fact, as I said, they, they compound it. They they commit another sin, the sin of sacrilege. So uh, th there is 
a healing dimension to the Eucharist insofar as venial sin is concerned. So venial sin would be lesser sins, uh, sins that do not break our relationship with God, but they offend God. And so when we go to Holy Communion and we, you know, even at Mass, we, we say the confidior uh, uh, at the beginning of Mass. It's not, it's not sacramental confession, but we're telling God that we're sorry for our sins, and then we receive Holy Communion. In fact, our, our venial sins are forgiven. Mortal sin is a different story. More The very word mortal comes from the word mortis, which means death. And uh, when someone has committed a mortal sin, that uh, that ruptures our relationship with God. And, um, and before then receiving Holy Communion, we have to repair that relationship uh, in the Sacrament of Reconciliation. I, I will use the analogy of uh, the relationship between a husband and wife. And in fact, our Lord used that analogy of, of uh, the Church uh, being a spouse, basically, uh, our Lord is the is the groom, and the Church is the bride of Christ. And uh, you know, so when a husband and wife, for example, if they're if one of them commits adultery, that relationship has to be uh, repaired before they can resume their their conjugal life, and there has to be repentance and reconciliation, and a promise never to do that again. And similarly with similarly with our Lord, we can't we can't do something that's mortally sinful and then just act as if uh, nothing has happened. Uh, that's the problem where uh, instead of calling people to repentance, it seems that uh, some are calling for the Church to simply lessen our understanding of, of sin. So, you know, Jesus' first word in his public ministry was repent, and uh, sometimes we forget that. So that Jesus says, repent and believe in the good news. Yes, the good news is that he forgives our sins, and he calls us to be part of his kingdom, but uh, we have, first of all, we have to repent of those sins. And uh, so uh, that's the problem with the message that we're hearing even by, from some within the Church, that uh, they just don't even talk about repentance and, and suggest that, well, maybe sexual sins uh, aren't that bad, or that we should just consider them to be uh, venial sins, and so you don't have to go to confession before you receive Holy Communion. And uh, that's contrary to the long-standing uh, teaching of, of the Church, that sexual sins... Uh, are grave matter. They are serious sins. So, you know, someone uh, commits adultery, or or even a, a couple that cohabits, a man and woman, uh, man or woman, or or people of the same sex who live together and have sexual uh, activity that's contrary to the, the moral norm, and and that's uh, that's grave matter. That's a very serious sin. People who are are living like that or are committing other kinds of sins that they're obstinate in and that they they basically don't believe that it's a sin right or they wouldn't or they would repent they're, they've lost that sense of sin it, it brings up a whole other level right of of being of not being ready to receive the eucharist which is something you talk about in your piece uh, the level of heresy people who really who who deny completely that what they're doing is a sin or that they deny an, a teaching of the church which is part of the magisterium and and it's something that we have to accept and we can't be obstinately opposed to it um these the word heresy is not a word we use very much or apostate or schismatic but looking at the big picture of the catholic church right now it seems like those are terms that we have to bring back into vogue so that we can understand what it's like to live as a catholic when maybe parts of the Catholic Church might be falling into heresy. Do you agree, well, Your yes. Excellency? Yes, we have to, we have to realize there are, there are 
uh, different terms that we, we have to be clear about. I mean, there's the subjective aspect of sin and there's the objective aspect of sin. Um, and what I mean by that is a subjective is to commit a mortal sin. It not only has to be a serious matter, grave matter, but you also have to know that it's a mortal sin and you have to freely choose to do that. So um, there are some subjective factors, for example, where someone may do something that is objectively very serious, but subjectively uh, perhaps do not incur mortal sin because, for example, maybe they don't know that. I mean, we live in a time of a lot of confusion. I mean, it is a mortal sin to miss Mass on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe maybe some people just, uh, the religious education that they receive, maybe nobody ever told them that. And mm-hmm. they just think, well, if I go, you know, twice a month or on Christmas and Easter, I'm still a good Catholic. And uh, and so that, then they're living in, in a sense of, um, of, of ignorance. Of, of And so they would not be subjectively culpable, but on its face, we would still say, yes, missing Mass on Sunday is a grave matter, just as adultery is a grave matter. But there are, you know, and then heresy is also a grave matter. But there, too, I would be careful with with uh, saying that if, certain, if somebody says something, it is heretical. That means it's contrary to something that, uh, uh, from divine revelation uh, and, and the defined teachings of the Church that must be accepted and believed. But there are, there are situations, perhaps, where... Uh, someone again may not be um, subjectively culpable. Mm-hmm. They may not realize what they're saying is heretical. So I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily say that I can't make the determination of whether or not that person is actually a heretic. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's interesting in canon law, uh, the sins of uh, apostasy, uh, heresy, and schism carry with them an automatic penalty. It's called an alate sententiae excommunication. And what that means is that the, it, it really it, it's incurred automatically because you could have a case where a person holds a heretical view and uh, or is a schismatic. That means they don't accept the authority of, of the Pope and the and the teaching of the church, or you could have someone who is an apostate that totally rejects the faith, and maybe they only they know that. So you could have someone who says, "I don't believe what the Catholic Church teaches anymore," and they, but they never say that publicly, but internally in their own souls and uh, in, in their own heart, they have rejected the church. They put in a self put themselves outside the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, for someone looking at that, I, I, I or no one else can look at that person and say, "Well, you're a heretic because I don't know what what's the." internal state of their soul. But if they say something that is contrary to divine revelation of the teaching of the Church, I can say that's a heretical teaching, and you shouldn't be saying that, and this is why it's heretical, because then if you do really believe this heretical teaching, well, then you've made yourself a heretic, in a sense. Your Excellency, we've passed the 10-year anniversary of Pope Francis's elevation to Pope, and lately, more and more, there's more talk of heresy and more talk of schism, and especially as we hear things coming out of Germany and and things like that. Somehow, many people feel uh, it's been expressed to be my it's been expressed to be my many good Catholics that the that the papacy, the current papacy, has maybe opened the doors to more nefarious uh, sections of the Church of uh, of, of cardinals and and different types who mm-hmm. who want to propose things which are on their face heretical and want the entire body of the church to accept this give us your um, a- appreciation of this of, of the papacy of the current papacy and how it's um, maybe laid laid us open to to more of these uh, difficult things well the um, the process that uh, that Pope Francis uh, is using with the synodal process is one in which encourages free expression of, of what 
what people want and what they feel uh, they need or the church needs in terms of changes or or um, various alterations in, in the practice of, of the faith. And so we have that free discussion. I've, I've heard, heard it said that Pope Francis says, well, he lets people talk, and then if they go too far, he'll tell them, well, no, we can't do that. You've gone too far. And that's, that's fine. But in the meantime, we've got a lot of people saying things, sometimes people in very prominent positions. So this um, synodal path in, in Germany, you've got a lot of people, uh, they, they published the names. I mean, this was public voting, including many bishops who were voting in favor of things that are contrary to the teachings of the church, like blessing same-sex marriages and calling for the ordination of women and uh, things that have uh, already been clearly defined as definitive teachings of, of the church. And and so you have people very confused about that. Now, what Pope Francis is going to do with that, the Holy See, I mean, the uh, Holy See has already issued warnings, some of the prefects of the various dicasteries in Rome, and then recently the German bishops had a, their ad limina visit with the Holy Father, and he basically told them, you know, he drew the line, said there's, there's certain things you can't do. And apparently they're defying that. So I, I, how this is going to play out, I don't know. But we saw, for example, with the Amazonian Senate uh, down in the Amazon in South America, that there were calls for many of these same kinds of things. Uh, but in the end, Pope Francis did not approve those proposals. And so you know, I think there are things that are coming out of Germany that I, I would expect, and I would hope that Pope Francis would, would not accept any of that, uh, in fact, would, would, would condemn what, what they're saying. But in the meantime, we have a lot of confusion because uh, you have people, as I said, in, even in the hierarchy, espousing these uh, ideas that are contrary to the teachings of the Catholic Church. One thing that brings me hope when I see all the confusion, and I, and I, and I see the confusion and I hear it from people around me and I see it in, um, in, in the media, one thing that gives me hope is the Eucharistic revival is the Eucharistic, the National Eucharistic Congress. It's been 83 years since since we had one of these. It reminds me, it, it, it brings it to, I think about my, my husband, my husband's a convert and um, he was he was Jewish when I married him. And it's only recently that he started um, going to adoration. And he, he goes around everywhere telling people what an amazing experience that is and how he he was told for a long time that, that it was wonderful to adore the Eucharist and to, to understand the real presence of our Lord and to, to bathe in that real presence. But it was only in the practice of it that he understood the power. So I see this Eucharistic revival, this Congress, as um, a, a great opportunity to, to return to the truths of our faith and, and to defend ourselves from these confusions and these, and these heresies, which unfortunately mill around and, and, and hurt our souls. Is that how you see also the this beautiful revival? Yes, the Eucharistic revival is a, is a wonderful opportunity for us uh, as a nation here in the United States uh, for Catholics here to really focus in on uh, what the, what the Church teaches, our understanding uh, of the Eucharist itself. You know that the Eucharist is is not just a, a symbol or reminder of the of the Last Supper. It's not a, it's not just a reenactment of. A, of a sacred meal, uh, but it's it's actually uh, the holy sacrifice of the mass, which represents what uh, what our Lord did when He He died for us on the cross on, on Calvary, and so and that and that holy communion as we receive holy communion again, we're not just receiving some blessed bread or a symbol uh, of the Last Supper. We're receiving the the true presence, the real presence of of uh, Jesus Christ uh, in the sacrament. So I think. 
it's a great opportunity for us, first of all, to renew our understanding of what the Eucharist is, and then we have some wonderful uh, events where we can come together as a church, because the church uh, is the body of Christ, and uh, we celebrate the Eucharist uh, together as a church, and so there'll be some wonderful opportunities. There's going to be the um, Eucharistic procession, and uh, in the meantime, we're going to have uh, our own Eucharistic Congress here in the Diocese of Springfield in Illinois. Uh, we're celebrating a Eucharistic year right now, um, and we will have a our Diocesan Eucharistic Congress on October 28th, and that will be held here in Springfield at the Bank of Springfield uh, Convention Center, which seats about uh, between seven and eight thousand, and uh, so that that's a Saturday. I've asked my priest not to schedule any weddings or uh, Saturday evening masses, but uh, and invite and encourage people to come together so that we can make this a big uh, diocese celebration on October twenty eighth. So thank you so much, Your Excellency, for spending the time with us and and giving us this wonderful view of Eucharistic coherence and and how it's going to solve all our problems. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. God bless you. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the Risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, where we'll discuss with us two important realities in our faith, prayer and fraternal correction. The first is prayer. Jesus says, Where two or three are gathered in my name, there will I be in their midst. This is an incredible promise given to us by Jesus. Yet we have to understand first what it means, and second, why he said it. It doesn't mean that wherever two or more Christians are in the same place, doing anything whatsoever, that Jesus is automatically there. It doesn't mean that whatever we ask him together will be heard when we want and the way we want. Which is why sometimes when family members gather to pray for a loved one's recovery from a terminal illness, the person doesn't always get better in this world. Jesus rather promises to be present when we are gathered in his name. Because a name is a sign of the person. To gather in Jesus' name means to gather in his person, seeking what he seeks. While we can obviously pray to Jesus when we're alone and should pray to Jesus when we're alone, Jesus particularly incentivizes gathering together in his name. Many people today think it's sufficient to have a so-called private relationship with Jesus, to pray on their own, and they can sometimes claim that that's an adequate substitution for coming to Mass or praying as a family. It's very clear, however, that Jesus wanted us to come together with others to pray. When his disciples asked him to teach them how to pray, he taught them to pray, our Father, not my Father who art in heaven, for the obvious reason that he wanted us to pray it with others and for others. Even when we pray the Our Father alone, he wants us to remember others, which is why he taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive, etc. Jesus came down from heaven to earth to found a family, and he wants us to live and pray as a loving family. This leads us to the second thing he teaches us in the Gospel this Sunday, which is what the saints have traditionally called fraternal correction. Whenever we gather together with others in the name of the one who saves us from our sins, as a family whose members deeply love each other, then it's obvious that we should always desire lovingly to help the other members of the family to overcome any obstacles flowing from sin that prevent communion with God or with each other. Jesus tells us, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won over your brother. 
If he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you. If he refuses to listen to them, tell the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, then treat him as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. These stages show us the effort the Lord asks of us to accompany those who make mistakes, those who sin so that they're not lost. Whenever a brother or sister has wandered through sin, whenever he or she is going off the deep end, Jesus tells us to gather with that brother or sister in his name and try to help that sibling realize and begin to overcome his or her sin. Jesus' teaching on fraternal correction is challenging. We live in a culture that thinks the greatest value is to be nice. Many act as if they believe that we should really never correct anyone else because that would make us seem judgmental or offensive or harsh. They assert it's important to be civil, to agree to disagree, to live and let live, to mind our business, and to be tolerant. But this mentality often comes from a lack of courage, a lack of seriousness about what sin really does, and a lack of love for them and for God. If we really care for a person, we'll have the guts and the love to intervene, because we know that sin kills those who sin and does immeasurable harm to others. Another reason why Jesus' teaching on fraternal correction is challenging today is because some who have misunderstood what it really means have given fraternal correction a bad name. They look at this teaching as a license for ripping other people apart. We've all suffered from people who are chronic complainers, incessant naggers, who really can't say anything nice about others, and who use the faith as a weapon to tear others down in order somehow to try to build themselves up. We don't want to be numbered among them for obvious reasons. But even though such people clearly need to take the planks from their eyes to see clearly, to help others charitably take the specks out of their eyes, Jesus doesn't permit us to use them as an excuse. Fraternal correction is a duty of love in which we approach others as humble fellow sinners trying to help them do better, uniting with them in the name of the Lord to battle sin together. We're like one sick person helping another sick person to know where to go to get medicine and find healing. Let's get down to the nitty gritty. The Lord is calling us to be his instrument to help out husband or wife, son or daughter, mother or father, friend, boss, employer, pastor, priest, religious sister or brother, teacher or pupil, anyone whose conduct is clearly not what the Lord wants it to be. If we know of someone living in a sinful relationship, the Lord wants us, like John the Baptist before Herod, to be his voice, calling them gently, lovingly, and firmly to conversion. If someone is addicted to drugs or booze or pornography, the Lord wants us to intervene. If someone is missing Mass on Sundays, the Lord is summoning us to try to persuade them to think about the good of their soul. If someone's lying, cheating, stealing, cursing, gossiping, or setting bad example, the Lord is counting on us to speak to them about it and ask them to change. How do we do this? The particular means should vary from person to person, but there are a few general rules. First, we should pray for the person and ask the Lord to help us to see the, how best to communicate this truth to him or her. Second, the saints propose that we make some small sacrifice for the person, like fasting. As Jesus teaches us elsewhere in the gospel, some demons are cast out only by prayer and fasting. Sacrificing for the other person also helps us do everything we're doing out of true love for the other person. Third, we should act in an appropriate time and in a fitting way. We don't want to ambush anyone when the person would be shocked and defenseless. Jesus says we should first go to the person in private. We shouldn't write an open letter, but with a meek and humble tone, go to the person so that the other person realizes that our goal is not to win an argument or make a point, 
but to win over a brother or sister. And so that both of us will be brought into greater loving communion with Jesus. If it doesn't work one-on-one -on -one in private, then the Lord tells us to try it with a couple of other people the person trusts, and who could be trusted to keep things private. Hopefully the added witness and love will be enough to convince the person to correct his or her behavior, and if necessary, seek help. This is what happens, of course, with interventions done to help alcoholics or drug abusers. But if the person persists in wrongdoing, we should go to the church, to those who can join in prayer, and if the particular offense warrants it, to the hierarchy that can lovingly give the person an appropriate ecclesiastical admonition to warn of the eternal danger he or she is risking, and may be told that by that behavior he is separating himself from God and his community. When Jesus says that we should, if this fails too, treat somebody like a Gentile or a tax collector, he's calling us to pray for them like we would pray for those who are clearly no longer living members of our community because they're too addicted to sin. Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. He was publicly called their friend. So he's never telling us to write them off. Rather, he's telling us to treat them like we would a non-Christian and to pray fast and work for their conversion. The flip side of this teaching on fraternal correction, of course, is that when someone comes to us with a Christian correction, we should be grateful. Even at first, we think the person may be off the mark with the criticism. Such an attempt shows us that the person really cares enough about us to try to help us become better. They are our real friends who love us so much that they'll risk their friendship with us to try to give us the help we need. We should see Jesus in them, patiently forming us to be the person he calls us to be and to respond with gratitude. And it doesn't just have to be correcting us of sins. I remember two of the greatest fraternal corrections I've received was from a friend in seminary who said, Raj, when we get together with four or five other guys, you talk 50% of the time. And so he taught me what they were seeing. And I immediately needed to give space for others to take charge of the conversation. And I had a spiritual director once who just simply said, Roger, you need a new pair of shoes. Because I had been neglecting buying a new pair of shoes for such a long time out of too much focus on work. How grateful I was for both of those fraternal corrections. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in their midst. So we prepare to gather on Sunday. We thank the Lord in advance, not just for remaining in our midst, but for entering inside of us, so that together with him we may be courageous in receiving and making fraternal correction, so that one day all of us may be reunited in that kingdom where eternal communion with God and with each other will know no end. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 